So people find themselves in church for many reasons. I don't know why you're here today. Um, 160 years ago, 1850, um, a young, this is in the, the month of January in England, so that's the middle of winter in England, a, a young man, 16 years old, was walking down the road to an appointment and a snowstorm descended upon him um, and he quickly turned off the, the, the road to find shelter. He opened the nearest door, closed it behind him and uh, once he was inside, he looked around, he realized that he was in a Methodist chapel and uh, he noticed there were other people in this room And he then realized that a service was about to begin. So unable to leave because of the snowstorm, he took a seat quietly at the back and he thought, well, he'll just see it through. And as this simple country preacher began to preach the gospel, this young man sitting in the back became increasingly captivated by this message. And... Uh, in this, this country preacher's sermon, he got to a point where he quoted a verse from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah chapter 45, where God, speaking through Isaiah, said this to the people of Israel, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And as he heard those words, he was absolutely struck and cut to the heart. And that young man had a dramatic encounter with Christ that day. He went on, in fact, that young man went on to become probably the greatest preacher in the, in the 19th century. His name was Charles Spurgeon. He became known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. So I don't know why you are here today. I don't know what's brought you here. Maybe someone gave you a flyer. Maybe you're a regular. I don't know. But I'm going to assume one thing. I'm going to assume that every person in this room has a desire to go to heaven when they die. I'm going to assume that. That when your time comes, and it will, and you close your eyes in this life, that you will open your eyes and you will be in that better place. This morning we're going to look at the story of a man named Nicodemus. And it may be like Nicodemus... The reason you're here today is because you've heard about Jesus, you've met people who know Jesus, and despite maybe some skepticism and some discomfort, you, you, do, you do believe that there is something about this man, Jesus, that is different. Maybe, like Nicodemus, God has been drawing you to himself. Uh, maybe you have a sense that this Jesus has the answers to your deepest questions in life. And maybe, just maybe, as we Christians believe, he also holds the keys to eternity and to heaven. Now, I can testify to you as, as someone who has had an encounter with Jesus Christ through the truth of the Bible. He does have the answers to your deepest questions in life. And he is a wonderful master to serve. And still today, he calls sinners like you and me to turn to him and be saved. Because he is God and there is no other way. So, if you're here for the first time today, you're a visitor, I just want to encourage you, although I know sometimes it's a bit awkward, you come to a church like this for the first time where people are singing their 
lungs out, they're raising their hands in worship, and the guy preaching actually preaches like he believes what he's saying. It's, I realize it's, it may be a little different, it may be a little awkward for you, but I'm just going to encourage you, relax, you're welcome here, no matter where you are in your relationship with God, you're welcome. And I hope that you will uh, hear me patiently so that you too can engage with who this man Jesus Christ is in the truth of the words of the Bible. If you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 3, please. If you've got someone sitting next to you who doesn't have a Bible, please share with them. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you're not in eyesight of one, it's fine. I will read the verses so you can just listen to me. There's no problem. And uh, Nicodemus, it tells us in in the first verse, was a Pharisee. He was a member of the uh, ruling party of the Jewish nation. And as such, Nicodemus was a man of power. And he was a man of prestige. People respected him. And he was a man of education. Uh, The Pharisees were the most highly educated men in the the Jewish nation, experts in the law of Moses, a man of power, prestige, and education. And these three things often, sadly, prevent people from having an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now you say, why is that? And I'm not opposed to people holding positions of power. You can't live in a society without positions of power. Authority is necessary. God, in his common grace to all men, has put certain institutions in place in society. Governments, uh, school systems, universities, and even within families themselves, there must be authority. So there's nothing wrong with positions of power, and there's even nothing wrong with prestige, or people being shown due honor or due respect for the positions that they hold. In fact, the Bible speaks highly of doing that. It even says, honor the king, a pagan king. Do you pay him honor? Nothing wrong with that. And I'm certainly not opposed to people getting a good education. In fact, I think one of the very best things you can do for underprivileged people is to Invest in educating a generation of South Africans. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Get the best education you can get. Nothing wrong. However, I think you will all agree that these three things can prevent people from having an encounter with Jesus Christ. Those who have power, I mean, you just look into the politics of any country, including South Africa, what power does to people. They say power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. What about prestige and uh, respect of other people? Well, how many people, myself included before I became a Christian, are prevented from coming to Christ? Why? Not because they don't believe, not because they don't know that it's the truth, but because they're scared of what their friends will think. Maybe that's you today. This whole thing of the fear of man, the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. So prestige stops people, this whole ego trip. And then um, education. Education prevents people from coming to Christ because the, the more educated people are, the more they are tempted to think highly of themselves. The more they are tempted to think that they know better than others and they cannot learn from others. All three of these things lead to 
And here's basically what we've been talking about. They lead to pride. And pride prevents people from encountering Jesus Christ. Why? Because if you want to encounter the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who is sovereign over every single thing of human history, you're not going to come to him with power, prestige, and education. You're going to have to come to him humbly. This is why uh, the Bible says that God has chosen the poor of this life to be rich in faith. He's chosen the weak things to put to shame the things that are respected in this life. That no man may glory in his presence. That's why Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He said it's easier for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Pride. Don't let pride trip you up this morning, my friend. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We see that although uh, Nicodemus has got power, prestige, education, yet we, in the life of Nicodemus, we also see something else. We see the unconquerable, irresistible power of the grace of God to draw a sinner to himself when he has chosen someone to come. Irresistible. So Nicodemus, despite all he had, he came to Jesus. You know, when he looked at Jesus, he knew, when he heard the things that Jesus was teaching and he saw the things that Jesus was doing, despite everything that he had, everything that life could offer, he had it. But when he saw Jesus, he felt entirely bankrupt. And he he just knew this man has something. And so he came. You know, some of you, God is drawing you. He's drawing you. For some of you, you've been drawn over the last few days, for some the last few weeks, for some months, and for some of you, years, God has been drawing you from your childhood. You remember. God will be incessant upon you until you come to him, until you bow your knees and you come. So, so Nicodemus, he comes, but he comes, un, he comes under the cover of darkness. He comes at night. He comes so that no one will see him. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't want to be seen coming to Jesus, and yet he can't help himself. He has to come. May that describe you. He comes under the cover of darkness. You know, there's, uh, in our early steps towards Christ, there is often a shame that we feel towards him. There's often an embarrassment that we feel about being associated with Jesus Christ or the church or Christians. You'd rather be seen dead than be seen coming to church or being in a prayer meeting or coming to a midweek Bible study. There's a terrible shame often that we feel in our early steps towards Christ. And yet, if God is drawing us, we come, we still come. Because somehow, like Nicodemus, we know that this Jesus is no ordinary man and he has the words of life. 
No man can come to me. No one can come to me, said Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Maybe God's drawing you today. Just as he was drawing Nicodemus those many years ago. Nicodemus came by night and he said, Rabbi, He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He calls him Rabbi. Rabbi was a term of respect in Israel. It meant teacher. He came respectfully to Jesus. He addressed him with respect. Nicodemus didn't waltz up to Jesus with an attitude. He didn't come as a man of prestige and power and education. He came humbly. He came, although he was confused, although he was not fully committed yet, he still came with a level of respect. You know, we live in a world where men like Richard Dawkins would win you over. They would win you to their way of thinking, to their doctrine, that this incredible universe that we see displayed around us just simply appeared out of nothing. They would have you believe that. And they would have you scoff at the idea that there is a God. Let alone the fact that you can have an encounter with his son, Jesus Christ, the risen savior of the world. They would have you scoff at that and disrespect the thought. But I ask you this morning, are you like Nicodemus or are you like Richard Dawkins? Do you come with respect this morning? Do you come humbly? Despite your questions, despite your your skepticism, despite your, your struggles, is there a level of respect and honor that you come with in your heart this morning? I hope there is. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had eyes. I mean, he'd seen He'd seen the miracles. Perhaps, we don't know which miracles he'd seen, but perhaps he'd been in the the synagogue that day where there was a man with a withered hand. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone with a withered hand. I remember being on holiday once, and um, I think we were at at the beach or at a swimming pool, and there was a a guy who was a very good-looking guy, you know, strong, well-built, playing in the pool, and I, I sort of you know, saw him, I didn't have a good look, and then when I, I got into the pool or wherever we were, and I saw him closer up, I suddenly, no, and it was quite shocking, I noticed from his elbow down, the one arm was entirely withered, about as thick as, a little bit thicker than a bamboo reed, and his hand was just a tiny little withered stump. Well, there was a man with a withered hand in a synagogue one day. And Jesus looked around at the Pharisees because it was the Sabbath day. And he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he knew the hardness of their hearts and the lack of compassion that they had for people. And when they, they didn't even answer him, they just stared at him. He said, when he'd been grieved in his heart by the hardness of these Pharisees, he then called the man to himself and he said, stretch out your hand. And it had been made whole as whole as the other. That's my Savior. That's my Jesus right there. A man of compassion and a man of power. Maybe Nicodemus had seen that that day. Maybe Nicodemus had seen Jesus cast demons out of blind and deaf people and at his word, go, the demons had left and the blind could see and the deaf could hear. 
Maybe he'd seen that. Maybe Nicodemus had seen that leper that day come to Jesus and say to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And maybe he'd heard the gracious words of Christ say to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the man was healed and cleansed of his leprosy. We don't know what Nicodemus had seen, but we do know that he had been witness to miracles performed by Jesus. And he says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He says, we know, not I know, we know, we the Pharisees know that you are a teacher come from God. And I want you to listen carefully to me now this morning, my fellow sinner. Listen carefully. This is the heart of every human being born into this world. We are so sinful that without the grace of an all-powerful and all-merciful God, we reject the light that God has given us. The truth that He has revealed to us, we reject it. Now, you know that that's true of you. You do know that. Just as I know that's true of me. We rebel against the knowledge of the truth that God gives to every person coming into the world. We rebel against it. Because we are rebellious by nature. That's how we're born. We're born into sin. You know, Richard Dawkins knows that there's a God. The Bible tells us that. He knows there's a God. The things that have been made declare God's being. The creation declares His divine nature and His eternal power are displayed in creation. And yet in... And incidentally, Richard Dawkins, for that reason, and all other so-called atheists, it's a misnomer, but so-called atheists will be without excuse on the Day of Judgment. They will not be able to say to God, well, God, I didn't know. It will be an unacceptable excuse because they do know. They are rebelling against the light that God has given them. Just like these Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And yet in God's grace, he draws sinners of his choosing. He draws them to himself irresistibly. He draws them to Christ and he overwhelms our stubborn, rebellious hearts with his grace so that we will come. It's a miracle. It's a miracle when people come to Jesus. It means God's done something in your heart. So Nicodemus comes. Uh, He says, we know. His conscience could no longer let him do what the other Pharisees were doing. They knew he was from God, and yet they continued to reject him. But something inside of Nicodemus would not allow him to do that anymore. And so he came. Verse 3, Jesus now makes the point that it's not enough. It's not enough to know that he's a teacher come from God. Uh, It's not enough to know that Jesus is good and kind and powerful, which he is, but that's not enough. It's not even enough to know that he's a teacher come from God or a prophet. That's not enough. And that 
was the very point that Jesus then made to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus makes a point to him, and I make the same point to you today. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not enough to know about me, Nicodemus, said Jesus. You must be born again. You know that today, my fellow sinner. You know that. You must be born again. Now, you may wonder what that strange phrase means. What does it mean to be born again? Well, let's read verses 4 and 5 because Nicodemus had the same question. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, truly, truly, Nicodemus, there is such a thing as truth in this life. We, we live in a world, a postmodern world, where uh, we are told not to hold any uh, convictions of belief especially about the things that matter most in life, spiritual things. You're not allowed to hold convictions in the postmodern world. We're not allowed to make exclusive claims of truth because they are arrogant, they're offensive. It's unacceptable, it's not tolerant. It's intolerant to say that one religion holds the truth and that all other religions are not true. Whereas common sense should tell you that's the case. But no, we're told that's intolerant. We're not allowed to hold uh, uh, convictions. And we're certainly not allowed to tell people that they are sinful, that the, the, the righteous, clean anger and wrath of God rests upon sinners. And the only way to be saved is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We're certainly not allowed to tell people that. But let me tell you, my friends, Jesus does not pander to the postmodern, irrational disdain for spiritual truth. He doesn't pander. He simply says to Nicodemus, truly, I say to you, you will not see heaven unless you are born again. According to Jesus, and as offensive it is to our modern mind, it is the truth. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, we know so far from what we've seen that it is synonymous with to be born again. Jesus begins, you see, he begins to unravel the truth. It starts slowly and he begins to unravel it with Nicodemus. So now we know we must be born again. What does that mean? It, be, it means to be born of water and the Spirit. Well, Jesus was referring to a prophecy of one of the Old Testament prophets, a man by the name of Ezekiel. Uh, 600 years before Jesus was born, the Jewish prophet Ezekiel was prophesying 600 years into the future about what the Jewish Messiah would do. The Son of God, when He came to the earth as Messiah, as the, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world, what would He do? Now, Ezekiel is prophesying, and we read that, that uh, prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. You can go and read it yourself. 
He basically says two things. This is what the Messiah will do when he comes. Number one, he will sprinkle clean water on his people, cleansing them from their sin. So that's now an explanation of Jesus' first reference. You must be born of water. So what does it mean to be born of water? It means to be cleansed of sin. It means to be forgiven. So when Jesus said, if you want to enter heaven, you must be born of water, he meant if you want to enter heaven, you must be forgiven of your sin. My friend, do you know that you are a sinner? Are you aware that you need forgiveness? Second thing, Ezekiel says the Messiah will do when he comes. He said that God would, through the Messiah, he would give his people a new heart and he would put a new spirit within them. He would take out the heart of stone, the the sinful, rebellious heart that we're all born with. He would take out that heart of stone and he would put in a heart of flesh. And he would put his spirit within us and he would cause us to love him and obey him. So that's now an explanation of the second reference of Jesus. When Jesus says, if you want to enter heaven, you must be born of the spirit. What he's saying is, you have to, if you want to go to heaven, the Holy Spirit has to come and make his home inside of you. And he has to literally recreate, change your heart from a heart of rebellion to a heart that is tender to God. You need a new heart. So when Jesus says you must be born again, he means these two things. You need to be forgiven of your sin and you need to receive a new heart through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And unless that happens to you, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. So Jesus then continued to simplify the matter for us. He says to Nicodemus, this is verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's actually quite simple, said Jesus. Don't marvel. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. It it makes sense, Nicodemus. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Nicodemus, the first time you were born, you were born in the flesh, and you were born sinful. You were born carrying the sin of human flesh, which we inherit from our first father, Adam. And and as such, you are born entirely corrupt. You're born corrupt in body and in soul. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're born, we're as bad as we possibly can be. Thank God that in His common grace, God gives gifts to all people. He restrains people all over the world. God is restraining and he gives good gifts. So when an unbeliever does an act of kindness, that is actually an act of God through that person in his common grace. God works, he gives the sun to shine, the rain to fall even on the ungodly, the Bible says. And yet, we are corrupt. And we're born with a dead spirit. 
You know, we're alive in the flesh after the first time we get born. We have a body and we're alive in this body, but the spirit inside of us is dead because of sin. Sin which we're born into and sin which not only do we inherit by nature, but within no time at all. For those of you who've had young children, you know what I'm talking about. You begin to sin yourself. <clears throat> you don't have to teach a baby how to be selfish. And that's why the Bible says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because corruption cannot inherit incorruption. You know, if if we're humble enough, we don't have to look very far within ourselves to know that we are sinners. You have a conscience. God gave you one as he gave me one. And you know, as well as I do for myself, that you have ignored your conscience a multitude of times. Tell me you haven't. No, my friends. We're slaves of sin. You are an embodied spirit. Richard Dawkins would have you believe that you are only a body. That's not the truth, my friends. You're an embodied spirit. But the spirit in you, until you come to Christ, is dead because of sin. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to set us free from sin. No amount of religious activity will solve the problem. Believe me, no matter how spiritual you think you are, how you know, what a good person you are, how many good things you've done. You, do, you can't hold a candle to Nicodemus. This man was a, he, first of all, he was a Jew. You say, what is it, what's that got to do with anything? Well, Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. At least Nicodemus knew the true God. He believed in the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And us, most of us in this room would be Gentiles, not of Jewish descent. We don't worship the true God. We don't know the true God until we come to the revelation which God gave through the Jews in the Bible. And we meet the true God. So first of all, Nicodemus is a Jew. Secondly, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were known for spotless righteousness, obedience that was above reproach to every one of the little laws in the law of Moses. He was spotless. And yet, Jesus tells him plainly, Nicodemus, you're dead in your sins. You are of the flesh, and you cannot see the kingdom of God. And if if that's true of Nicodemus, um, and if you've got an honest bone in your body, you'll admit that that's true of you. You must be born again. I was in Neisner recently on holiday with my family over the Easter weekend. And uh, my son and I were in a mountain biking shop having my mountain bike serviced. And we were standing there chatting to the, the technician while he was doing it. And a lovely guy, probably 28 years old, very good at his work. And uh, we were thrilled watching him do it. He was explaining all sorts of the mechanics to us. And, <clears throat> and uh, at some point in the conversation, we were there for probably half an hour or so, he said to me, uh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? I said to him, I'm a Christian pastor. And immediately, the, you know, the tone of everything changes when someone knows you're a pastor. 
And uh, I said to him, what's your spiritual background? <clears throat> and uh, he, he said to me, well, you know, uh, I didn't grow up really in a ha- house that was religious at all, but I've found while I'm surfing, while I'm out in the sea, I've found a certain peace, and that's where I find my, my sort of oneness with nature, and I find calmness of my soul, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel a sort of connection there. <clears throat> and there were lots of other people around, and I, you know, said a couple of things to kind of encourage him, but it really wasn't the time or the place to begin to preach to the guy. He wouldn't have responded well because there were other customers around. But I so desperately wanted to, to, to say to him, you know, listen, I've, I surf, so I know what it's like being on a wave and feeling the power of a wave behind you. It's the most incredible feeling. And hearing the sound of a clean face of a wave move beneath your board. Those of you who surf, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is an incredible experience. But I wanted to tell him, my friend, that is not a spiritual experience. It's an emotional experience and a very, very intense emotion, but it's not spiritual. The problem is not that you need to find somewhere to calm your heart. and so That's not the problem. The problem is you're dead. You must be born again. So uh, I only got home a couple of days ago, so I phoned him yesterday, got hold of him. I thanked him for his time and I got his email address. So there's something I, I need to, to say to you. I'd, I'd, I'd like to send you an email. He said, okay, here's my address. And I've sent him an email trying to explain some of this to him, that he must be born again. Have you been born again? How then are we to be born again? So we ask that question. How is it that we can become truly spiritual? Truly spiritual. How is it that we can enter the kingdom of heaven by being born again. Now listen to the words of Jesus. This is in verse 6. We've just looked at it. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. There must be a profound regeneration, a recreation of your entire being, whereby your dead spirit is made alive. And a pure and upright nature is given to you. Nicodemus then asks him, how can these things be? How can this happen to me? If it is like the wind, if it's, if it's out of our control, God does it to whomever he wants to, then how can I be born again? He says, how can these things be? Jesus explains, well, it's like when the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and everyone who looked at that pole that Moses lifted up was instantly healed of their snake bite. And Jesus said, in the same way, I will be lifted up on the cross, that whoever looks at me and believes will be healed, will receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's how God does it. He doesn't want anything from you. He says, believe. Believe what my son did for you when he died on the cross for you. We know that this had a great impact on Nicodemus, this encounter with Jesus. How do we know that? Very quickly, in John chapter 7, there is an encounter that we see Jesus 
uh, Nicodemus have with the person of Jesus again. He was in the council, sitting with the Pharisees. They've just sent guards down to go and arrest Jesus because so many people are believing in him. They send the guards down. Hours later, the guards come back without Jesus. And they say to the guards, well, where is he? And these guys just totally undone by what they had experienced when they went down to Jesus. All they can say is, no man ever spoke like this man. They said, have you also believed in him now? Have any of the Pharisees believed? These people who don't know the law are cursed, they say. Here's Nicodemus. He's sitting in this council meeting in an environment as hostile as that. Nicodemus, he speaks up for Jesus to his fellow Pharisees. He says to them, does our law... Judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? They suddenly turn on Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Look and see there's no prophet from Galilee. They didn't know their Bibles. Isaiah had said the people in Galilee would see a great light. Didn't know their Bibles or they chose to ignore it. The third encounter, I'll finish with this. Finally, we see in John chapter 19, right at the end of John's gospel, John and when he writes his gospel, he tracks the progress of Nicodemus right at the end, after the death of Jesus. We see him again. Most of the, uh, all the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about a man called Joseph of Arimathea who came, asked Pontius Pilate for the body. They took the, the body down from the cross and he buried it. But in the Gospel of John, John is at pains to tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was not alone that terrible night. After these things, Joseph came, who was a disciple of Jesus. He asked Pilate to take the body away. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Now listen, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had been laid in. And so because the Jewish day of preparation was there, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid his body there. Nicodemus had the unspeakable privilege of climbing up the cross that day and carrying down that broken body of Jesus Christ, the body that he knew had been broken for him. And he got the blood of Jesus all over him that day, blood that he knew had been shed for the forgiveness of his sins so that he could be born again, as Jesus had said, that he should be. And he took that body that he knew had been broken for him and he laid it in a tomb. And he was one of those three days later when that tomb was empty. He was one who would have been able to bear witness. That body was dead and now it is alive. Just as he said he would raise, be raised from the dead. Our boldness for Jesus grows over time. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you're just beginning to hear about this Jesus and this gospel message. I want to pray that God will do in your life as he did in the life of Nicodemus, that your boldness will grow, that you will come to the point where you don't care who sees you and you will carry the body of Jesus with you.
and that you will believe in him risen from the dead that you might have life. Amen.